If you would like our free newsletters on various religious topics, just send us an email at cdebater at aol.com and free newsletters will be sent to you by mail. Just provide your postal address in your email. The following are samples of some of the newsletters we have available. Does God Believe in Atheists? Part 1 Seventh-day Adventism True or False The Agony of Deceit The Origins of Muhammad's Religion Spiritual Warfare Are Psychic Mediums Communicating with Ghosts or Demonic Spirits? Testimony to the Eternal Godhead, the Trinity. From Tradition to Truth, a Priest's Story. An Evaluation of the Oneness Pentecostal Movement. Mormonism, Counterfeit Christianity. Turn or Burn. Jehovah's Witnesses, Deceived Deceivers. Links to these newsletters can also be found at our website www.biblequery.org Once on the home page, simply click on the menu icon at the upper left-hand corner. Then click on the Newsletters button. Feel free to print them out. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Welcome once again to our program. I'm Larry Wessels, your host. I want to thank you again for being with us for Christian Answers Presents. Well, as usual, we do a different topic every time we do a broadcast. And uh, so we like to mix it up. Uh, uh, we don't want to bore everybody with the same old type of show every time. On a, so we have different topics and different theological issues that we discuss from week to week or whenever we put out our shows on YouTube. And today, one of my very familiar and regular guests is a good friend of mine, a dear Christian brother and theologian, uh, Rob Zins. Rob, great to have you here, brother, as usual. Thank you, Larry. Good to be with you again. Looking All forward right. to uh, having a good visit in and around the Word of God. Amen. Amen. So, with that said, for our most of our viewers already know you from all these decades of our broadcasts, even going back to public access TV days. <laughs> that's how far back our viewership goes, way back to the early 90s, 1990s. So uh, anyway, as usual, I, when I introduce you on a show, I just ask you to give us your theological background and uh, anything else you might want to tell us about yourself, any books you might have written, uh, website, so forth. So have at it, please. 
Right. Well, probably most of your viewers are familiar with uh, the ministry that we began in 1992, I think it was, that we decided at our little church up in central Vermont that we wanted to have a better outreach to Roman Catholics in our community. So we started a ministry that at that time was under the auspices of Reformed Bible Church in Rutland, Vermont. And the ministry was called A Christian Witness to Roman Catholicism, CWRC. And uh, as time went on in God's providence, we were introduced to opportunities to debate Roman Catholic scholars and to write. And so I've written two major books on the topic of the differences between the Roman Catholic religion and biblical Christianity. I've also been honored to co-author a brand new book that should be coming out this fall sometime. Uh, my co-author, Tim Kaufman, who's written two excellent books on the Roman Catholic religion. And I have uh, put together a brand new work that I think everybody will enjoy because it's based directly on answering the assertions of Roman Catholic scholars on why they believe the Roman Catholic religion can be defended from the Bible. That's their claim. And so we took the challenge and answered them book, chapter, and verse, paragraph by paragraph. And I think the, uh, the book is turning out very nicely because most people are wondering, where do the Roman Catholics ever get this sort of thing? That's the question that's asked me the most. Somebody will write a note on the internet or call me on the phone and they'll say, where on earth do the Roman Catholics ever get purgatory? I can't find that word in the Bible. Where do they get that? And I'll say, I'm glad you asked because <laughs> this is what they rely upon from the Bible. And I'll take them to the verses that Roman Catholics are going to use in defense of their doctrine of purgatory. And uh, then I'll say, what do you think of that? And they'll say, wow, I would have never thought that. And I said, well, do you think it's a good use of the Bible? And they'd say, no. And I'd say, why? And they'll say, well, and they sometimes give for a good answer. But our job is to give a complete answer that they're not using the Bible appropriately and the context is not being read properly, and the application is not from or forthcoming from the uh, text that they are using to prove their point. So this book is going to help Christians, and I would hope that Sunday school teachers across the nation would want to use this book and have a special Sunday school class because it helps them in interpretation of the Bible, interpretation of history, and interpretation of the Roman Catholic uh, religion. It may surprise you, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and at one time, the Southern Baptist Convention was the largest religious organization in Charlotte. Now, Charlotte and its attending circle of small suburban cities that surround it have eclipsed the one million and guess what's the largest religious organization in Charlotte now? Roman Catholicism. You guessed it, the Roman Catholic religion. So hey. here we sit in the in the Bible. We're not we're probably not the buckle of the Bible belt. I think Dallas, Texas 
likes to be called the buckle of the Bible Belt. <laughs> but we are certainly in the Bible Belt and here the largest uh, unsaved group that claims religion and claims the Bible is the Roman Catholic religion. So my work has been over the last 32 years to write, debate, speak, conference, do everything we can to get the word out, to help people to understand that the Roman Catholic religion is a religion unto itself, and it certainly is not biblical Christianity. And though they use a lot of Christian terms, they use a whole new dictionary in defining those terms. And we point that out again and again. So that's what I've been doing. That takes up quite a bit of time, and I'm happy to do it. And I don't think there is a retirement in Christianity. I can't nope, find it. No I, I guess. I guess when you when you can't think straight anymore, it's time to do something else. But so far, so good, Larry. That's so we'll right. Just, that's we'll right. just carry we just on. Doing, we just go on until the Lord calls us home. The way I look at it. That's it. So that's, that's how it goes. Yeah, just uh, carry on. So today yeah. we're going to look at. Uh, we're actually doing two videos today. The first one will be on the Christian worldview and what that means. It's an important topic because I would like to challenge Christians nationwide to begin thinking of their worldview and thinking about who they are and thinking about why we are so different from everybody else on the entire planet. So we'll talk about that. Yeah. I want to just interject one thing as you get ready to begin your uh, detailed analysis of this subject. Uh, one thing you didn't mention as you were doing your introduction there dealing with Roman Catholicism is the fact that uh, many Catholics who may be watching this program so who is he to do all this stuff? I mean, he's writing books and stuff, but he doesn't know anything about church history. Doesn't he know that the Roman Catholic Church goes all the way back to the, the, the Apostle Peter as the first pope? So he doesn't know anything about church history or any of those things. So what is your theological degree? Did you ever go to a seminary? And what was your degree in? Well, I did go to a seminary. You and, did? Uh, I, I managed to... <laughs> I managed to uh, squeeze a four-year Master of Theology into five years. I loved Excellent. working so hard, I stayed an extra year. Uh, I have a, uh, a Master of Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary, uh-huh. and uh, it has come to good use, I hope, in my life, because uh, it's a, a taxing uh program to get through. When you go to Dallas Seminary, now they give you a number of choices. You can do a two-year program. You can do uh, something called an STM or Master of Arts in Biblical Studies. But I said, while I'm here, lay it on me. I want the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, but now while you were there for those four or five years, you never studied anything about church history, did you? So you wouldn't know anything about Roman Catholic origins. Well, I just so happened to major in church history, and I wrote my master's thesis on justification, so that might qualify me at least for an intro, just an intro right? I, subject. I, yeah. I, I couldn't resist that. When you forgot to mention you were from Dallas Theological Seminary, yeah. and you, you majored in church history and stuff like that, I said, oh, we got to get this in, because they're going to be wondering, who's this guy, just a layman off the street or something? So... You are a theologian and a, a pastor in the past, elder of a church and all that. So uh, excellent stuff. Okay, now you just introduced the shows we're about to talk about, uh, Worldview. 
So I'm going to let you take over, and you just kind of roll along, and I'll just kind of interrupt you here and there. Try not to be too much of a bother, but uh, right. we'll let you go with it. All right, Larry, we want to start uh, this particular topic at the beginning of the beginning, and I want to enlist the aid of a famous Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper. Abraham Kuyper wrote a book, one of his best books. It's called Principles of Sacred Theology. I have a copy right here with me. And one of the main chapters in this book is Dr. Kuyper's attempt to show the importance of the Christian worldview. But in order to do that, we have to get to the Christian worldview. What is it? And how does one have a Christian worldview? And Dr. Kuyper has made some insightful and informative deductions in his study of theology, and uh, I want to borrow a couple of quotations from him to begin our lecture this morning, okay? Dr. Uh, Kuyper, in commenting on the Christian worldview, I think is very insightful, and I want to read to you just a short paragraph taken from his book. He begins by saying, human beings would find differences between themselves, and perhaps differences would be ultimately lead perhaps to some kind of advancement in the unity of truth. In other words, he's looking at the human culture in general, and he's saying human, human beings have differences between us. These differences if given enough time and given enough conversation and given enough discussion of this topic or that topic, could perhaps arrive at some kind of unity of truth, just because we're all human beings. He says this would be true if all the differences originated in a closed system. In other words, all there is is us. All there is is our system. We have the world, and we have the countries of the world, and the citizens of each country, and it's a closed system. So we're going to talk about our differences, and we're going to try to find some unity of truth. But now Dr. Kuyper makes an interesting observation. He says, and I agree, but all this falls away when confronted with two kinds of people, those who part company due to differences that come from a source outside of this closed system, outside of the normal discourse of human consciousness. What Dr. Kuyper is saying is we're all human beings. We all live on this planet. We all live in countries. Let's communicate with each other. We might find a unity of truth on a number of subjects because we're all humans. But what happens if there is a intervention from something outside of our humanness? And he says this intervention doesn't find its origin in the normal circle of human consciousness. It's not part of the closed system. It comes from outside of the closed system. And he says these very words, the Bible speaks of a change in the very being of a man 
that's brought about by a supernatural cause. So now, this regeneration breaks humanity in two. And according to Dr. Kuiper, and I do agree with this, it repeals the unity of the human consciousness. It repeals the unity of the human consciousness because we are no longer just human beings all living in a closed system, all living on the planet Earth, all living in our countries, all communicating together. Something has happened to change the consciousness of some of the human beings who live in this system. So the system is not closed anymore. It has been penetrated by something supernatural. And that supernatural change has brought about a change of consciousness, which forever repeals the unity of the human consciousness. In other words, he's talking about somebody being regenerated. Born again. I, well, regenerated and born again. Yes. We find these terms used in Scripture, and Dr. Kuiper was well aware of this. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, the Apostle Paul says that God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly upon us through Jesus Christ. Now this washing of regeneration, the Greek word there is pelagonasia, and it literally means regeneration is what Dr. Kuiper has in mind. The idea that there's been a regeneration that has come into this closed system of earthly, worldly consciousness. And when that happens, it changes the person. It changes the consciousness. He goes on to say that the fact of being born from above, coming in from without, establishes a radical change in the being of man. This change exercises an influence upon his consciousness as far as it has or has not undergone this, transform this transformative state so that it creates an abyss in the universal human consciousness across which no bridge can be laid. Now there is an abyss between someone who has been affected from this outside pelagonesis and somebody who has not. There's an abyss between them in human consciousness, in human thinking, in human desires, in world view, if I may. And Dr. Kuiper says, there is no bridge that can be laid between them. Christians are different. Jesus answered in John chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, to the question, how can one be born again in that pericope of the scripture by saying this? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The word there, ganesse, anothen, 
literally means born from above. Okay, it could be translated again, which would be closer to the word regeneration, born again. But I like the translation born from above because it tells us that outside the normal human consciousness in a closed system, something has happened to these people. Kuiper goes on to say, such a change in the life process of human nature will produce an inevitable divide and produce two kinds of people. I want to set the record straight right from the beginning. Being born from above and being regenerated by the Spirit of God produces a different kind of person who was before Palagonesis and Ganethe Anopman, born from above. And that person that is created by the intervention from God in being born again has now a Christian worldview that he did not have before. He did not have a Christian worldview before. Only those who are born from above have a Christian worldview. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, Christians, I don't want you to shy away from this. I don't want you to, in any way, shape, or form, try to manage this. I don't want you to try to ameliorate it in some sense. I want you to embrace it. If you are a Christian, you are designed to be different in the world that we live in. You have been given a Christian worldview in virtue of being born from above, regenerated, and as the Apostle Paul says, you are a new creature. Now, it doesn't take long to think through what happens, especially if you're a little bit older and you have lived some life, and then all of a sudden something happens to you. You might go to a meeting, you might start reading the Bible, you might hear a message on TV, you might go to church with a friend. Something happens, you come in contact with this whole idea of Christianity, and then as you're reading or then you're thinking about it or as you're pondering these kinds of things, all of a sudden, it's true. I believe it. This is the truth. This is the right worldview to have. You know, that gives evidence that you've been born from above. Amen. In fact, when you uh, were looking, it's funny, I was already looking for 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, when you got to it, I had just found it in my Bible over here and was going to throw it out at you, but you got to it before I could get to it <laughs> about the new creature. Uh, yeah. But then there's also here in Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, it says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And so that's to reemphasize the fact that you're talking about something new has been that came from the outside through the power of the Holy Spirit a new creature has been found when this thing you've described so well in detail has occurred so exactly
Yeah, and um, Dr. Kuiper has written over 50 pages on this one thought, and I'm going to summarize it from his text for you right now, okay? Dr. Kuiper, and of course, I'm quoting him because he says it so eloquently and so clearly. He says, and I quote, We speak none too emphatically, therefore, when we speak of two kinds of people. Both are human but one is inwardly different from the other and consequently feels a different content rising from his consciousness. Thus, they face the cosmos from different points of view and are impelled by different impulses. And the fact that there are two kinds of people, occasions of necessity, the fact of two kinds of human life and two kinds of consciousness. Do you hear that? If you are a Christian listening to this talk today, I want to reinforce that you have crossed over into a realm of consciousness, a realm of impulse, a realm of worldview, a realm of a acknowledging and seeing things and seeing life totally different from a man standing next to you or a woman standing next to you who has not had the experience of being born from above or regenerated by the Spirit of God. And of necessity, it creates two different kinds of people. The Apostle Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's what you were. That's how you walked. That was your worldview. He goes on to say, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's the person prior to being born from above and regenerated. But he goes on to say, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together in Christ. And that word made us alive is translated as quickened in the King James translation of the Bible. And it means to be made instantly alive in some sense from the deadness previous to the miracle of life. And Dr. Kuiper is emphatic. That creates a brand new person, a brand new worldview, though we're both humans, both live on the same planet, live in different countries, perhaps different language. We are utterly different from that point on in everything. I call it the great divide. It's the divide between the natural man living in a closed system, viewing life in that system and the what the Bible describes as the spiritual man who lives in a totally different worldview 
totally different system of thought, different consciousness, different way of looking at life. And that's going to filter down to mean everything. If you don't understand this divide and you don't understand how radical it is, you'll never understand those who are not in it. And those who are not in it will never understand you because they can't fathom it. But if you are a Christian and you have been born from above and you've been changed and you are new, you better understand the one who is not because God's going to tell you all about yourself before you became a Christian. He's going to do it by describing the ones who are not. And there was a point when you were not. Okay? So I call it the great divide. It's the difference between what the Bible calls the natural man and what the Bible calls the spiritual man. Listen to these words by the Apostle Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in his letter to the Corinthians, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Now listen to this. This is important. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Why do we live in a world where it is fraught with violence and crime and hatred and murders and wars and disgusting, sinful immorality and cesspool politics and cesspool life. Why? Why do we live in that world? It's because the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. And the man or the woman or the teenager or the child who's truly born from above, truly regenerated, understands it completely because he now has a Christian worldview. God has shown us how to see the rest of the world. And that's precisely what happens when your worldview changes. Now, having said this and set the stage for a worldview that's Christian, the Bible tells us what to do about it. And we need to refresh our memory on what to do about it. The Apostle Paul is very helpful. He says, This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you will walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk. They walk in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, and they are excluded from the life of God. Pretty strong, huh? Your next-door neighbor, your best friend, your golfing buddy, teacher at school, your professor, if they're not born from again, if they're not Christian, if they have not been regenerated, they are dark in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They're hard-hearted people. And that's their worldview. That's where they live. And 
the Christian, of course, has a different worldview. The Apostle Paul says, they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greed. But you, Christian, did not learn Christ in this way. Are you beginning to feel the weight of the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian and the value of a Christian worldview and the reality of it? I think maybe sometimes, Larry, that there are born-again, regenerated Christians who may have forgotten just how different they are and how different they are supposed to be and how different God has made them. And they have been sort of smothered by the world that they live in and other priorities begin to take hold of their life and their worldview and they begin to be too nonchalant about their Christian consciousness and their Christian awareness. One of the numbing things that I have uh, witnessed in my own life, and I've, I've pretty much seen it with other Christians, is this whole Hollywood entertainment industry. I don't think I can watch a program streamed in by any of the streaming companies that you can sign up with without the program. If it's gritty, if it's so-called realistic in the worldview, without those actors and actresses taking the Lord's name in vain again and again and again and again and again. Why is it that when something startles them or if they're angry and or if they're frustrated or they're drunk or they're involved in e even a good war movie everything is taking the name of jesus christ and just dragging it through the mud they don't understand what they're saying they don't understand who they're dealing with they don't understand who that person is that's the god who created the universe. That's the third person of a triune God. That's the one who holds everything together. That is the author of their salvation. That is the one that they'll have to face one day in the resurrection. And they're taking the name above all names and dragging it through the mud. That's why the Apostle Paul says that they have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity what could be worse taking the name of your savior the one who lifted you out of the mire and the mud and gave you the the mind of christ and saved your soul eternally being dragged through the mud and how many christians ignore it to say well that's not affecting me I think it does. I think it hurts your worldview. And I think it, after a while, puts you in a compromised position, especially if you're watching with your friends who aren't Christians or your relatives who aren't Christians. And I want you to be more aware of it. I want you to understand that the Christian view says no to that.
Now, what's interesting to me, since I, you know, I know what it is to be a lost sinner, and I know what it is to be born again. So I've been in both camps, just like you. We were. We don't come into this world unless you're John the Baptist. There in uh, Luke chapter one, I think it's verse fifteen, uh, where he j- leaped for joy when his mother, while he was still in the womb, had <laughs> mentioned Jesus. Uh, Mary was talking to her her uh, uh, cousin there. So, uh, but. I got born again in 1981, May 16th. I remember the night like it was yesterday. I didn't remember exactly what happened and how it happened. Uh, I was reading the verse, 2 Timothy chapter 3. I was reading the passages, actually, 1 through 5. And I was dodging every bullet there about what people are going to be like in the last days. And in the last days, there'll be backbiters, lovers of evil, uh, evildoers, uh, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, disobedient to parents, and all this stuff. And I was saying, well, I'm pretty bad, but I'm not that bad, you know. But I fit every category as he was going through the litany of evil, that the way people acted in the last days. And I got down to that last passage, that last verse uh, there in that passage, uh, verse 5. It said, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. And that's at that very moment, that's when I was born from above, as you've been talking about. And all of a sudden, in a flash of a moment, I, and it was funny in my case, I almost could hear what I thought, of course, I might have been wrong, but it, it seemed like angels were singing for a moment there. And I just fell on my knees crying out to God, I realized I was a lost sinner. I was trying to dodge the bullets in those first four verses. But I was convicted of my sin on verse 5. I was using religion as a cover to think I would be all right, even though I went to church twice a year, and I Easter and Christmas, but I skipped Easter sometimes. I always made it for Christmas. But uh, I thought that was good enough to get into heaven. But anyway, I was convicted of my sins. And all of a sudden, from that night on, I saw everything different in a supernatural sort of way like you've been talking about this whole time in your presentation, Rob. So I'm convicted about sins. You know, like when I hear somebody use the Lord's name in vain, you know, I kind of cringe and I don't want to do certain things. You know, I cringe or I hear something and see something. I, I, uh, I'm convicted. So the kind of stuff you're talking about, Rob, is uh, is... For a born-again Christian, they shouldn't get to the point where they don't let the Spirit speak to their own spirit, like you find in Romans chapter 8. Uh, they, 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 start, they shouldn't be getting complacent like that, you know, because I've been a Christian all these, these years, what was it, 41 years now. Uh, that's actually longer than I've known you, so it seems like you've been there the whole time. But anyway, 41 years of born-again Christian, and... Uh, I try never to be in a state you're describing for some of these people. But of course, at the same time, we also know uh, from our videos we put out in the past that most people that claim to be Christians are not real Christians. They're basically, as I put it in the videos, fake Christians. But the problem is most people claim to be Christians. Even Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden claim to be Christians. You know, so uh, what can I say? Uh so this is a problem. 
Anyway, I want to give it back over to you to pick up where you were when you were discussing how a lot of Christians who at least claim to be Christians uh, are are starting to get complacent about their sin. So go ahead. Well, what I'm what I'm hoping will happen, Larry, is that as we read Scripture together and we measure our lives, that things that need to be cleaned up in the lives of Christians will be cleaned up. That they will be convicted and um, examine themselves and begin to sort out the kinds of things that would be offensive to our Savior that are taking root in their minds and in their hearts. And I want to maximize the Christian worldview and also warn of the dangers that can lead to a false profession of faith. So Paul is very strong on this, as we would expect him to be. In Galatians chapter 5, he draws a contrast between the spiritual man who is controlled by the Holy Spirit and the natural man who is controlled by natural impulses. And he says, now the deeds of the flesh, these natural impulses are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, worshiping a false god or anything you put in the place of the one true God. Sorcery, messing around with satanic kinds of movies, shows, board games, videos, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and then he throws in, and things like these. Okay, he gives a laundry list of the kinds of things that most Christians would read and say, well, I'm not, I'm not there. Wait a minute. Jealousy, strife, outbursts of anger, factions, sensuality. It doesn't sound like anybody can go to heaven. I mean, everybody's kind of done this or been a part of this. That's not the apostle's point. His point is, I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things, and what he means by practice such things is that there is no evident repentance, there's no evident conviction, there's no evident change in their behavior. They are going along to get along. They haven't stood against it in their own hearts, let alone the culture. And he says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You may think you're a Christian, you may think you have a Christian worldview, but if you're not guarding your heart and your mind from these things, and you're in the practice of it, then you need to repent, give them up, turn away from them, come back to Christ. If you have truly been born from above, you'll understand what I'm saying, or you're simply playing games with religion. Uh, you know, the fact is, if you're born again, you you 
Make the attempt. You, you're convicted. You try to repent and keep your life in line with God. But a unrepentant sinner that may be religious, he doesn't have the power of the Holy Spirit within him to overcome those things. See, a born-again yeah. Christian with the whole power of the Holy Spirit, they have the power to overcome those things. God does not tempt you beyond what you can handle, basically. And so you can handle certain temptations and things because you have that supernatural power. The, the sinner man that's unborn again, the natural man, he doesn't have that power, so he can't do it anyway. So anyway, exactly. go ahead. Exactly. And the, and the Christian worldview says that I'm to take this, which in me, to the marketplace and it will influence everything I think, say, and do. Mm-hmm. But it starts here. Are you truly born from above? Are you truly regenerate? You mentioned Romans 8. Paul says in Romans 8, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's the unregenerate man. Right. But those who are according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. That's right. The mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. That's the worldview of the unbeliever. He doesn't think he is. He does he it could be the nicest walking postman, if there are such a thing anymore, <laughs> in the world. You want to give him a tip and a box of candy every Christmas because he's such a sweet guy. But if he's not born from above, his mind is hostile towards God. Why? Because he doesn't subject himself to the law of God, the, the law of Christ, and he's not even able to do so. That's right. And those who are in the flesh simply cannot please God. When when Kuiper says there is an abyss between the believer and the unbeliever that no bridge can cross, you begin to see why he's saying these kinds of things. Christianity is radical. For the unbeliever, it's just as radical. But Paul says, however, you... Christian are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit if the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he simply doesn't belong to him. See, that's a key verse right there. You're none of his. None of his. And there's all these people, they they don't even realize it because they don't have the spirit, but they all claim I've you know, talked to I've talked to so so many people who who want to be Christian and they say they are Christian and they're raised in the church and they generally attend mm-hmm. but they're they don't they don't really understand how radically different they are from the world around them. Right. And perhaps that's why they're soft on the kinds of things that Paul says, if you practice these things, you'll never inherit the kingdom of God. People don't realize the stakes that are involved here. They don't understand the stakes. Uh, We're dealing with a holy and righteous God. He's got a fierce wrath 
that burns like fire. <laughs> they don't have a reset. They think they think God just loves everybody. It doesn't matter. But when you read the scripture, it's a totally different story. So these kind of people, they because they don't have the power of the Spirit, they're not uh, born from above, they don't understand the nature of God. They think God is like them. Uh, Psalm 50, right? God says, you all together think I'm like you, and I'm not, and I'll punish you to, for that. You know, So it's, it's scary stuff. So go ahead. It is scary stuff. So there's this divide between the Christian and the non-Christian, but let's make sure if you're listening, that you are a Christian. And the, and the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith, to see whether or not you pass the test. The test is not, did you do more good things than bad things last week? The test is, do you have faith to live this life for Christ? and all that it entails. Is that faith in you? Is, is, it, is it a mark of you to have a Christian world view? And that is the challenge the Apostle Paul puts out to a body of believers that he expects the majority of them to take this on board because he thinks that the majority of them are Christians, probably thinks there are a number of non-Christians who are bothering them and upsetting them, but ultimately, he's saying, look, examine yourself. Just are you living in a Christian worldview? And are you taking every thought captive to Jesus Christ? Basically, that's what he's asking. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine right. yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that... Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. I'm reading the King James, but anyway, right. we've already... Except that she failed the test, essentially. Right, right, right. And right. that's a test of faith. It's not a test of works. It's a test of faith. It's the, it's the bent of your life. It's the, it's the lean of your life. It's the worldview that you have. That's why you can listen to Nancy Pelosi, uh, who, who, who says she's a Christian, say, no, you're not. No Christian could live this way. Those who practice such things will never inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah, but she got, around that. She, she got around that. She got around that because when the cardinal, the arch cardinal, arch cardinal, whatever cardinal there is over there in San Francisco, he, he banned her from all uh, masses and being able to take the Eucharist because of her stance, right? right? But then what she did is she went over to the Vatican, and this was in the news a few weeks ago, whatever. She went over to the Vatican and visited the Pope, Pope Francis. And Pope Francis took her in and administered the, the communion and the Mass to her and gave her the Eucharist. So right. when she goes back to California, he said, well, look, I'm okay because the Pope gave me the Eucharist and the, I performed the Mass for me. So she can overrule the Cardinal there in San Francisco with the Pope. So see, didn't that make her all right with God now? No, because you can't you can't get around idolatry and those who worship at the altar of the Roman Catholic religion are idolaters. They worship they all, they all a claim false to be religion. Christian. They all of claim course, to be Christians. Of course they do. That's part of it. That's part of the delusion. 
Mm-hmm. We're saying that to be a Christian is to worship the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, the one and only. This is God's word. And Roman Catholic religion is built on anything but God's word. So to go over there and accept anything from the false prophet, from an antichrist figure, is just moving from atheism to idolatry. And idolatry was a bigger problem in the nation of Israel than atheism was, worshiping the idol. And that's what she's doing. So let's take a look now at the result of this great divide. What are When I say Christian worldview and you take it on board and you practice it in your life and you're thinking about it, you're thinking, okay, I'm a Christian. I've got the mind of Christ. I believe the Spirit of God dwells within me, sealed until the final day of redemption. How shall we then live? Well, the Apostle Paul, as you might, have guessed or surmised has some good advice for us. I'm going to quote 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 16. Here the apostle is direct and straightforward. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? That's the false god of the Old Testament. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Think about that. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? The Apostle Paul is not asking you to pick up pen and paper and sit down and say, football, golf, milk chocolate, going on cruises, loving the sunset, swimming in the ocean. He's not asking you to write all the things you have in common by way of taste with an unbeliever. He's asking you a much deeper question than that. He's asking you, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? He's talking about worldview, priorities, worshiping the one true God. And the answer is nil. You have nothing in common with an unbeliever when it comes to your basic systemic worldview, how you view the world, how you view mankind, how you view heaven, how you view eternity, how you view life, how you raise your children, what priorities you have, the things that matter. He's not asking you if you have the same like in ice cream cones. He's talking about the deepest level possible. He says in verse 16, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of God. What agreement would we have with idol, the idol of the false religion? And that's why this ecumenical mania that Larry and I have talked about so often, this idea that we go along to get along, or all religions are basically the same, or that if you're a Roman Catholic, no big deal. If you're Muslim, no big deal. You got your way. Many spokes to heaven. This whole idea is just nuts. It's antichrist. It is not biblical. Biblical is you are the temple of the living God. And what does that temple have to do with idols? And an idol is any religious organization 
that exists outside of the scriptures that does not have a biblical foundation. So the result of the divide is that we can't go where they go, do what they do, think like they think, and we're uncomfortable around non-Christians because of that very thing. You may have unchristian friends. They're not born from above. They don't share your same priorities. They don't believe like you believe. And at the end of the day, you ought to feel uncomfortable with them. If for nothing else, is that they're dead in sin and trespasses, and they don't have Christ as their Lord and their Savior, even though they have no clue what that means. That's their state. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, they have no hope and they're without God in this world. You think God loves everybody and that's your message from a Christian worldview? That is a satanic message. That's not a Christian view message. The Bible speaks directly. They are without hope, having no God in this world. They are without God. So let's not be falling into the trap of compromising the gospel by telling people that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. That's not true. The wrath of God applies upon all those who are outside of Jesus Christ. There, this is a pet peeve of mine because I hear it constantly. Right. I hear it from pastors, teachers, ministers. doesn't matter what denomination. Right. Their whole focus, their whole thing right. is God loves you. Right. Well, if that's true, you got nothing to worry about. But if you haven't been born from above, you don't have the mind of Christ, you've not been regenerated, you don't have a Christian view, how can you say God loves that? You can't. Neither does the Bible. So that's the result of the divide. Listen to well, these he, words. Go ahead, Larry. Well, I was going to say, I want to, for the viewer's sake, take a look at this chart right here on all the verses that show how God hates people. <laughs> he actually says he hates You see it in the Psalm 5, 5, 5. It's all of them are listed right there for you. even got a video uh, out on how God hates people. Uh, people, it's like you say, Rob, it's a mantra. It's a lie. That these, and, and what about this one? Oh, God loves you, and he's, he's knocking at the door of your heart. And just let him in because he's trying to, because they quote out of Revelation, you know. Right. Does that verse have anything to do with Jesus standing outside and knocking on your heart that, yeah. from your knowledge of the scripture see yeah. that's right that's another lie right there so yeah and, and we don't you know we don't relish this <clears throat> we don't relish the thought that god hates people we don't relish the thought that there is an eternal hell we don't relish we're not we're not excited about this and enjoying this fact but it is a fact. It's a sobering fact. It's a heartbreaking fact. I have friends who are not Christians, and I look at them, and I've told them again and again, you are outside of Christ. You have no hope. At the resurrection of the dead, you'll be judged and sent into an eternal hell. That's what I believe. And they say, well, I don't believe that. I say, I know you don't believe that. I know you don't have the mind of Christ. I know you don't believe the Bible is the word of God. 
But to me, it's a sad thing. It's a sorry thing. And what grieves me even more, and and I think it really grieves the Christian worldview, is when you go to church and your pastor stands up there and says, God loves everybody, and he right. wishes he could save them. And they'll quote 2 Peter 3, 9, yeah, 3, yeah, 8, yeah. 9. Yeah. But God is not willing for any prayers, but for all of God. We should have a video on that one verse. I'd like to do a video <laughs> on that one verse. Well, we because can. That's, that, Next that's time. the verse that most Christian pastors use, that in John three sixteen, But they're taking it entirely out of context. And right. they're taking John three sixteen. And they're taking the word world there and they're right. I've got a video on that. Yeah. I mean, we need to have that because it's sad. So the Christian worldview looks at the world and says, I live in a lost world. That's why I'm in the world, but I'm not to be of the world because this world's lost. And to say that I love everybody and can't do anything about it is just beyond me. Now, your knowledge of the scripture, you've probably heard of the book of Acts. Right. And you're aware of the Acts of the Apostles. And you've got a good historical rendition there by Luke. It's super accurate, even by historians and yeah. history people that have studied this. He's one of the most accurate historians that anyone's ever seen. So, uh, you know, he's got the names right for all the towns and everywhere where Paul went and right. stuff like that. Now, your knowledge of this. Bible alone, but then also the book of Acts. How many times did Paul and Barnabas and those guys, Mark, they go into these towns, right? And they're, a lot of times they get beaten, run out of town, and left for dead, and all this kind of stuff. Like Paul had to go through shipwreck, whatever. But uh, anyway, how many times, from your knowledge of the book of Acts, do you see Paul saying, God loves you? God loves you. God loves you. Uh, he has a wonderful plan for your life. He's knocking on your heart. God loves you. How many times is the word love mentioned in the book of Acts from your knowledge? It's never mentioned. The word love is not in the book of Acts. That's it's right. Not, it's not That's right. In now, any of the scriptural accounts of the messages from any of the apostles, they, did, they didn't preach a message that guaranteed that God loved anybody. It was just right. the opposite. They preached a message that guaranteed that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wrath of God abides upon them. That's what really, really undid them. Look at the uh, second through the fourth chapter of Peter's sermons early on in the book of Acts. Right. What did Peter tell those people? Yeah. You killed them. That's right. You put to death the Lord of Lords. You put to death Jesus Christ. You're the ones who are guilty. And God so, will punish you for that. That's right. Now, 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 now let's take a look at it. All these evangelists you're talking about here in the modern days. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. They call themselves evangelists, pastors, preachers, stuff like that. But what about Peter and Paul? Or would you consider them preachers? And evangelist, would they Absolutely. would Paul would would Paul be classified as an evangelist going about preaching the gospel? You know he would, yes, absolutely. So how come he's not saying the same thing these preachers are saying about God loves you, God loves you, God loves you? How come he's not doing that? Because Paul <laughs> never read John three sixteen. <laughs> I guess that would be their answer. 
Uh, John 3.16 is the heart and soul, along with 2 Peter 3.8.9, of the love gospel. Uh That's why Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, Methodist churches, you name it, that's why those guys stand up there and they say, God loves you Mm -hmm. and has a wonderful plan for your life. Right. And they they don't even think, they don't even think for a moment what they're saying right if god loves you and christ died for you and god wants to save you why why would you ever fear going to hell that's right that's right there's there would be no fear there and if I- of course the the answer from the armenian is that because you reject god's love you and you won't you won't let God save you. And that's a whole nother heresy. That's yes, not the way yes. the Bible is written. It's simply not. And it's not the Christian worldview, by the way. When Paul says they are without God in the world in Ephesians chapter two, mm-hmm. he means it. They have no God. No, if they have no God, they have no God to love them. Right. And he's yeah. and he is warning them. You have no God. And because you have no God. There's no God who loves you. Get off that. You all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And you're That's one right. of them. That's right. Now, I, it just occurred to me, I've never thought of this before, but now in relation to John 3.16, because uh, you came in with that answer a minute ago, it got me laughing, but uh, uh, John also wrote uh, Revelation, did he not? True. Now, when you read Revelation, does he... Is he always talking about when the Lord comes back, and let's say in Revelation 19, and he's got the armies of heaven behind him, and he's riding on a white horse. Uh, is he talking about how I love you uh, when he's riding down there to all the uh, masses on the earth? Or are you finding this kind of terminology throughout the book of Revelation about the no, love no, of the God? Answer, the answer to those who use John 3.16 as a trump card. You know what a trump card does in oh, yes. the game of cards? It trumps everything. Right. You could have four aces and be trumped by a trump card. Yeah. Trump trumps Trump, right? <laughs> he's got the he's got the best last name because he thinks he can trump everything. But right. anyway, get, getting off that. Uh when you when you have a trump card that says John three sixteen, God loves, he comes back riding on a white horse with a sword, uh uh, handing out revenge, like Second uh, Thess chapter one talks about, mm-hmm. he only does that because people refuse to let him love them. So <laughs> the entire the entire scriptures are framed in the dynamic of unrequited love. Right. God loves you, but because you don't love him back, he's going to kill you. That's what they don't take into consideration. They frame right. that argument, right. but they never right. think it through. Right. That's nothing more than unrequited love. If God loves you and then hates you because you don't love him back, what kind of love is that? <laughs> That's, right. It's, That's right. It's beyond me, but they don't think it through. And See, and I, already showed it, I already showed the people on that chart a while ago all these verses showing the hatred of God towards the wicked sinners. Now listen to this and tell me your thoughts on this. Romans chapter 9, verse 22. 
In fact, I did a whole series of shows with Bob L. Ross on unpopular Bible doctrines. Right. I might have even done one with you on there, but in that series. It was like 16 hours long. But anyway, what if God, this is a Romans 9.22, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endureth with much grace with the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Right. And then he goes on to the next verse, and that he might show, make known the uh, riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. So he's showing the t- two groups. He's showing the ones that are vis- vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, are made for destruction. Sort of like the potter with the clay, right? right. And, then, and then you've got the others that are vessels of mercy. Right. Yeah. And, and exactly. Stay tuned for the providence of God. That's nice. Ah, very good. So That's just nice. a quick comment on that, because uh, Bob Ross in that series we did on unpopular Bible doctrine, we came to this verse. He said, "That's the verse that scares me the most," because <laughs> he's having pity on the uh, the lost people, the people who have not been born from above, right? Because he's saying they are fitted. For destruction. Yeah, prepared. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So uh, So let's then then look at one other Bible verse on the result of this great divide. We looked at 2 Corinthians, do not be bound together with unbelievers, and the implications of that. Now, I want you to turn, if you have your Bibles, to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 through 16. Here the author is recounting the life of the the one person who's mentioned more than any other person in all of Scripture as an example of what we must be like in order to see the kingdom of God, and that's Abraham, okay? He says, with reference to those who were faithful with their lives, said, In verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. And that's the life of Abraham. He never was comfortable in the land given to him, always seeking the kingdom of God, always seeking his final eternal destiny. This is a Christian worldview. If you get nothing more from this message, get this. If you're a Christian, you are confessing that you are a stranger and an exile on earth. Why? Because this earth is not your final home. And this earth will constantly be filled with pain, suffering, evil, turmoil, wars, disgusting events, mass murders, child abortions, euthanasia coming right down the line. And that's the world. It'll never change. This is not our home. 
we're in this world, we're born into this world, but we're born to give glory to God and to speak his gospel directly to this world. But it's not our world. It never has been, and it never will be. Since the day you believe and develop your Christian worldview, this worldview had to go. And that's the truth. That's what happens. Christians are pilgrims passing through a strange land. Passing through. And you mentioned in another video we did uh, that uh, the end of this world is already designated by God to be destroyed with fire. Right. That's that's that, that's how temporary this world's going to be. That's when God the ultimate gets global it. warming. Yes, that's right. We talked <laughs> about in the last video. Exactly, exactly. So if this world's so important, then why is God going to just wipe it out completely? Right. So anyway, go ahead. All right. So now I want to look at um, if you're out there thinking about your own life, I want to look at four character traits of a Christian worldview. And I want to start out by quoting uh, Dr. John Murray, former chair of theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, in his, uh, in his book on ethics. He says this, Christians understand that fear consists of being afraid of God when there is a good reason to be afraid of God in the light of God's holiness and punitive judgments. Let me repeat that. Christians, this Christian worldview, understand that fear consists of being afraid of God when there is good reason to be afraid of God in the light of God's holiness and punitive judgments. There is also the reverential awe and adoration kind of fear which elicits confidence and love. So there's two kinds of fear in the Bible. There's the fear of God when we need to be afraid of him, when we have sinned mightily, Christians sin mightily. I would hope that anybody out there who has committed a mighty sin before God has had the opportunity to experience the fear of God in this sense. You need that. You need to know that that's okay, that that's real. Because all of us Christians understand his holiness. And we understand that God cannot tolerate sin and will not tolerate sin. But we also need to understand there's a reverential reverential awe and adoration that it actually elicits a confidence and love for God because we understand all of him and all of his characteristics all of his nature, and he's a merciful God, and he's a loving God, and he's an awesome God, and that's the kind of fear that's also in our hearts for God. But I like what John Murray says. I agree with him. Fear consists of being afraid of God when there's a good reason to be afraid of God. Don't be afraid to be afraid of God, because that's the God that saves you from himself. People say, well, I'm being saved from hell. Nah, hell has no power over you that God has not given hell. You're being saved from God. It may sound paradoxical, but God's love saved you from himself. He can't change. That's why he sent his son. You know, you had a a good point there about... uh, Fear of God, because uh, isn't there a passage in First uh, John that 
uh, talks about uh, a sin unto death, you know, and, and that, that God actually can kill Christians for going too far in their sins or sure. yeah. throw them throw them into a sick bed. So there's real good reasons for, uh, and that and that's kept me straight over these last 41 years because I'm always thinking, now I could do this sin. I, my flesh would really like to do this sin, but God might kill me for it. <laughs> he might, he might he get might. me real sick. And, and I'm going, you know, so that's really kept me in good shape as a Christian on some serious stuff I actually contemplated for a, a little while while the temptation was there. And I just said, no, I'm not going to, no, I'm not going to make, you know, it's just too dangerous. <laughs> I, I, I love God. I fear God. And I'm going to just do what God wants it's, me to do. It should be totally disruptive to walk to the edge of a sin that will destroy you. Right, right. It should be. And that's sure. part of the Christian worldview. I can't yeah. go there. I don't want to go there. Yeah. If I go there, we used to uh, tell our congregation in, um, in central Vermont, where I pastored for 19 years, we used to tell them, Satan always takes you farther than you want to go. That's right. And keeps you longer than you want to stay. <laughs> so that don't so true. don't go there. Don't That's go right. there. And it is the wrath of God that ultimately will destroy all those who stay there. Mm -hmm. They have no hope. They're without God in the world. So that's why when we talk about four character traits of the Bible, for Christian view, the first one is the fear of the Lord. Christians fear the Lord. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Job 1, 8, and 9. Okay? The Bible also says this out of the, out of the uh, book of Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Job's a pretty good illustration of a Christian worldview. I think all you would agree to that. For there is no one like him on earth. He's a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning from evil. Fearing God and turning. Is that your worldview? If you're a Christian, that is your worldview. If you're absent from that worldview, examine yourself. There's nothing wrong with saying, I fear God and I turn away from evil. Luke chapter 1, verse 46 my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Who's speaking here? This is Mary, the mother of Jesus, speaking. This is the Magnificat. Verse 49. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. Fear of the Lord is one of the first character traits of a Christian worldview. It's the beginning of wisdom. Yep. Second Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. 
How about Peter? Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Fear God is always a part of the gospel message. It's always a part of the Christian worldview. Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in what? Going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. Going on in the fear of the Lord. Perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Upon generation, his mercy for those who fear the Lord. Job, a blameless and upright man, fearing God. Those outside of Christianity are marked as living outside of the fear of God. If you put the scriptures together properly, and I think that we have here, those outside of Christianity are marked as living outside of the fear of God. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3. This is the description of the unbeliever. He's, remember I told you that God's word will tell us who we were and what we live with of those who are not born again. He says, the throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path. And the path of peace have they not known. And the cap that ends it all is this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You want to know the difference between a Christian worldview and a non-Christian worldview? Is that Christians fear God. There's a fear of God embedded internally. It's in us. God has placed it there. We're thankful that he has. We're thankful that he's given this to us. But to the non-Christian, no fear of God before their eyes. You know, I did a... I did a, 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 a I was looking around for it here in my Bible. It's, this is the part of the Bible that fell out in the first broadcast because I didn't have the rubber band on it, I guess. But uh, anyway, the I've got a, it's in one of my videos, and I've got the record somewhere. I, I can find it again. I'll probably do an Internet search. But I think that I did the search on how many times the Bible mentions the fear of God. Okay? Yeah. Old Testament, New Testament. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the number was in the hundreds. I don't have the exact number here. I was looking around to see if I could find it, but while you were talking, in uh, yeah, the hundreds, sense. hundreds of verses, right? And, uh, and then when it came to uh, the love of God, it was, I mean, there was a good number there, but it wasn't, I mean, it, it, it was puny compared to the fear of God being stressed throughout the scripture, you know? So, uh, Anyway, can, just thought I'd mention that. Christians can take two things to the eternal bank. One is that God loves them. He proved it. The other is that we are to fear God. He's put the fear of him in us. And but the, but the love of God is only for his elect. Right. Only for the, the true born-again Christians. Yeah. yeah. Not all. Remember Matthew 7, Jesus said right in there, uh, that many, many will come saying, Lord, Lord, did not we do this many wonderful works in your name and blah, blah, blah. And what did Jesus tell them at the end? Yeah, depart from me, I know you not. 
Yeah, and that basically was said. I I never loved you, basically, yeah. or the four. Yeah, and but there is an incredible love of God for His people, yeah. and and that love love is reciprocal between and the people. And, and the gift is the Christian worldview. The gift yeah. is repentance. The gift is contrition. The gift is conviction. The gift is spirit of God dwelling within you. The gift is the mind of Christ. And so as we walk through this life, we keep in mind that the mark of the unbeliever, the characteristic mark of the unbeliever, is that there is no fear of God in them. That's right. So we live in a world within the world. What's new? I just want to remind Christians that this is how we are to live. Now, the second characteristic of the Christian worldview, and there are only four of them that I want to mention today. The second one is that Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and are obligated to live by the word of Christ for the glory of God in obedience to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ asked his followers a simple question in Luke. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord. That's Luke six forty six. And not do what I tell you. Christians, if you're a Christian, repent of their failure to not do what the Lord tells them to do. Christians are absolutely saturated with the love of Christ for them and the obligation to live for him in light of that love. We don't love Christ to be saved. We love Christ because he saved us. Amen. Yeah. God People people think they gotta work for it, but you you repent, you love God because he first loved us. And he did the work of regeneration through the power of the Holy Spirit. So you got that supernatural love in you which you can then properly give back to God. Un- unregenerate man can't do that. It's impossible. No, no. no. <laughs> Paul writes, for though we walk in the flesh, we are humans. We do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but they are divinely powerful for the destruction of spiritual fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I had a friend of mine send me a note. I've known this man for a long time. And uh, he sent me a letter because I had challenged him to stop making ridiculing remarks about Christianity in front of me. He was starting to make a habit of doing this. So I called him on the carpet for it. Well, he sent me a letter back to me, and he said, okay, I apologize for doing that, but here's something you need to do for me. You need to stop praying every time we share a meal together. That really bothers me. I sent him a note back, and I said, You can never ask a Christian to stop praying and giving thanks for a meal. The remedy is for us to enjoy what we can together, but eat separately. 
I'm not going to stop praying for anybody. Right? Right. So I mean, how could you possibly entertain the thought of accommodating a man who's unregenerate, doesn't fear God, ridicules Christianity, and he's going to tell you to stop giving thanks at meals because you're a Christian. That's when you say, no, my Christian worldview will not permit me. I can't do that for you. And I won't do that for you or anybody else mm -hmm. because this is who I am. This what is what it means to be Christian. We don't stop praying. Doesn't matter where we are, who we're with, what time of day it is, and for what reason, we're not going to stop. God has asked us to pray, and this is what we do. And when I so, pray myself, it's like a lot of times I'm at work all night. You know, a lot of uh, the job I've had for over 30 years now. Uh, but it's been a great place for me to do research. I get to listen to sermon audio. I'm listening to you down there uh, at this job. And uh, it, it sets me up for a lot of videos that I've produced in the years past because I can research things for hours on my headphones, and they let me do it. I've even got a video about this called Cell Phone Theology or something like that, <laughs> where I, I hook into like places like sermon audio, listen to great preachers and everything like that. But anyway, I'm just saying all this to... Uh, reiterate the fact that I uh, as a Christian we pray and I can pray continually so I, I'm at this night job let's say I'm doing work I'm pushing what we call post cons that's a, a, a conveyor uh, a container on wheels and or I can be doing other jobs at that place throughout the night for 10 12 hours but no one knows I'm even praying because I'm doing all this work and I'm talking to the Lord wherever mm -hmm. I am and whatever I'm doing. And, and it's all throughout the night because God's ever with me. And so, so in other words, I may not be down on my hands and knees praying or, or standing in the middle of the aisle at work or something, holding my hands up, you know, but I can still pray the Lord throughout the night wherever. And it, 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 and of course for meals, yeah. I do pray openly and stuff like that in front of my family and things like that. But uh, the thing is, you don't necessarily have to even pray where people can tell you're praying. Because God knows your thoughts. He knows everything that's going on. So I play a lot of times silently, uh, wherever I am, driving down the road, whatever. Praying, praying when I'm coming here to do a, a television show with you that the Lord would honor us. With the right I, would things say, to say. I would say it's not either or, it's both and. Exactly. If you have an opportunity exactly. to sit down and have a meal with a group of unbelievers, yeah. there's nothing wrong with a Christian saying, I'm just going to thank the Lord for exactly. this meal and this time together. And if one of them says, that's offensive to me, then the remedy is not, oh, I'm sorry, I won't pray. The remedy is, well, perhaps we should eat separately. Because I am going to thank the Lord. And all things give thanks. Seriously. So yes. this is what we do. Yeah. Now, so we're talking about the fear of God is one characteristic of the Christian worldview. The other one is living by and for Jesus Christ. You can talk about God all day long and not hurt anybody's feelings. Because they all have framed in their mind this God of theirs. You can go... Right. You can go to a Hindu, maybe not a Hindu, but certainly a Muslim world, 
And you can talk about God all day long. It's when you name the name of Jesus Christ. Right. Say that right. he is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody goes right. to the Father except through him. That's when the first starts flying. But right. yet, look what the scripture says. We're to take every thought obedient to Christ. Mm -hmm. doesn't say to God, although Christ is God incarnate. It says to Christ specifically, because our relationship with God, the Heavenly Father, is entirely dependent upon Jesus Christ. Entirely. Yeah. Well, the whole there. book's about him anyway. From oh, my goodness. Genesis to Revelation, there's hundreds and hundreds of Messianic prophecies yeah. in the whole time, right? And all the way, and then you get fulfillment in the New Testament. So Romans five one. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Romans eight thirty one through thirty nine. At the end of saying, but in these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, no height, no depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Amen. It doesn't stop there. Shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul says, Christ is all. And that's the Christian worldview. We fear God, and Christ is all. Now, what that's is the, the Christian worldview? Another passage. I, I don't remember exactly where it is at the moment, but uh, I, I would have you know nothing at all except Christ and Him crucified. Have you ever heard right. that verse? Yeah, so, I think that's Second Corinthians. When I came to you, I preached nothing but Christ crucified. Yeah. Lest you would think that the power came from me. I know those passages. Everything revolves around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Amen. So the Christian worldview, Christian worldview, not God worldview, Christian worldview, is everything hinges upon Jesus Christ. Everything Amen. in the Bible hinges on Jesus Christ. So that's the second characteristic of a Christian worldview. The third characteristic is living life according to to the infallible truth of God's word. Christians really embrace God's word as the truth and the only truth. We minimize this too much, I think, in our Christian view. The Bible is the word of God, and it's the only word of God. Christians have a worldview that embraces the Bible as the very truth of God. God is the beginning and end of all things. He is both creator and sustainer of all life. And he is the author of his word. And it's his word that Christians are responsible for. The moral precepts of scripture found in the word of God, the application to God's elect are final and absolute. God is truth and all truth is God's truth. God is truth, and all truth is God's truth, and his truth is in his word. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in his prayer to his heavenly Father prior to his crucifixion, said these words, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is, is truth. truth. John 17. 
so, 17, 17, verse 19. He says, for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So Christians a, believe that our sanctification stems from our yielding to the word of God. And that's the third characteristic of the Christian worldview. Okay, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with all these uh, Christian apologists running around in the William Lane Craig? Remember, we did a video on William Lane Craig, and uh, he he denies that man. <laughs> he denies that uh, there's uh, there was a global flood. He thinks uh, all these pastors that believe all those Bible stories are. Are basically nuts. Uh, remember, we played all those clips in that video you and me did on him. Yeah. Uh, he's basically calling Jesus a liar in a, in a lot of the stories that he told. He says about the only thing you can really believe is uh, the resurrection actually happened. So he's he's big on the resurrection, but almost everything else, it's just you know because how how dare Jesus indicate that the earth was created by God in just a short amount of time, six days. That's ridiculous, right? Uh, that, could, that couldn't be true. I mean, it, the earth is billions of years old and all this stuff. Uh, but you got a lot of these kind of guys out there that are even apologists for Christianity. And they don't believe the Word of God, except the one guy, remember on that clip we played uh, from that other one? I, he said, well, I think the Bible's 85% true. 85%. And that's pretty good. And it's, it's, that's actually up from uh, 10 years ago when I thought it was only 82% true. <laughs> We're playing all these clips from these apologists. So what about them? So they, they, they think 15 to 20% of the Bible's bogus. So does your, the Christian worldview, does that mean, allow for that? What they, you're don't talking about? A, they, don't, they don't have a Christian worldview. Okay, they're, standing so, in, they're standing in judgment on the accepted word of God. And the apostle writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 2 of 2nd Thess, I think, that he thanks them for receiving his word for what it is, yeah, the word yeah, of yeah. God. Good point, okay? good point. So, so the these Christians guys receive it. No, they don't. They don't. They're, they're there to chop it into little pieces, to parse it out, to minimize it, to marginalize it, to excise the things that uh, don't find favor in their point of view, rather than to be under the judgment of the Word of God, they stand in judgment over the Word of God. Yeah, but they get a lot of friends from the world. The world likes them when they do that. Think about that one. <laughs> the world likes them. The world exactly. hates Christ. The world that has no God and no yeah. hope. The world where there's no fear of God in their eyes. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can count them as Christian. You can count mm -hmm. them as as somebody interested in Christian philosophy. But exactly. certainly they, they haven't surrendered to the Word of God. And that's Christians, what our conclusion was in that video that you yeah, and me did. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Well, Romans one eighteen, the passage that we talked about a little bit before says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Any and all attempts to suppress the truth is a suppression of the word of God. What other truth is there to suppress? 
Right. Everything that we say about the Bible, every interpretation and application we have coming from the Bible, if you suppress it and say, I'm not going to live by that, or I don't like that, or that didn't happen, or I don't think that's true, that suppression is suppressing the word of truth. And it's an unrighteous thing to do. And that's a characteristic of the lost, not the saved. Mm -hmm. Romans one twenty five says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Does that sound familiar? Oh, yes. That oh, exchange yes. goes on every day. The truth of God for a lie. You really don't believe the Bible, do you? You believe mm -hmm. all that stuff? That's ridiculous. Oh, the Bible is so narrow. How could you believe in a God like that? They said, because it's true. It's true. It's true. It's true. Well, you believe it's true. Yes, I do. I don't. I know that. The Bible says you don't. And because of that, you're without God in the world, except for the one of your imagination. And that's not that's right. the true God. That's right. Now, Paul says of his ministry, and this is important. We have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness, or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Not adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth. All these guys that you talk about, they're seriously adulterating the word of God. Yes. They're reducing it to their level. They're standing in judgment and then they're extricating it from the Christian experience. And they're saying, well, mm -hmm. you don't have to follow that. You don't have to believe that. Believe what we tell you. But that's yeah. not the accepted truth. Second Corinthians 13, 5 through 8. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we should appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. Well, what truth was the Apostle Paul talking about when he said we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth? There's only one body of truth that I know of, and that's the inspired word of God. And he said we can't do anything against it. We can only do it for it. And finally, the warfare of the Christian, the mark of a Christian worldview is what? Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. truth. It's part of the Christian armor, the truth. So the mark of a Christian worldview, fear of God, obedience to Jesus Christ, and following the precepts that Christ has laid down for us in his word. That's the three marks. We have one. Do we have time for one more mark? Go ahead. Of a Christian, I think we have time for one more mark. Christians need to understand that the worldview involves living in full awareness of good and evil. Okay, let me explain that. Christians understand and take on board that God has declared what is right, what is good, and what is just, and what is evil, and what is sinful, and worthy of his wrath. This filters out into a life that is willing to adhere to 
the specific social norms and life events that bear the approval of God, and Christians believe that all laws and governments should be based upon the laws of God. The Christian worldview spills over into the arts, into politics, into government, into sociology, into every realm of the consciousness of the human being. Remember at the beginning, we said there are two kinds of men. There's the consciousness of the natural man, and he's in arts, he's in literature, he's in, he's in the uh, government, he's in politics. But the spiritual man also lives in these realms. And the spiritual man, with his Christian worldview, looks at everything and judges everything and examines everything and brings it to the table on the basis of whether or not it can be or would be approved by the word of God. That's the Christian. And we understand this from the Apostle Paul when he says that the only way he could possibly become a Christian was to be killed by the word of God. And that's the only way any of us can become Christian. The word of God is given to destroy our confidence in ourselves and to show us how sinful we are. And the Apostle Paul said, if the word of God had not said, thou shalt not covet, I wouldn't have known. But since it does say that, I found coveting of every source inside of me. So the Christian is bound by the Christian worldview to take every thought obedient and captive to Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he's bound to bring the light of Christianity to every social event, every law, every thought, every political persuasion has to be governed by the Christian worldview. That's why I think so many Christians vote against the Democratic Party in the United States of America because they are totally for killing babies in the womb. And if you had nothing else in front of you other than that, that would be enough to swing the vote of the Christian. I can't endorse a government mandate that is written by a person I elected that grants freedom for women to kill their own babies. That's bringing Christianity to the table. It's bringing it to the Congress. It's bringing it to the Senate and saying, I can't endorse this. I can't vote for it. And it would follow right down the grid as far as righteousness, judgment, truth, life, living, the whole thing, what the Bible expects of human beings. So a Christian worldview says that we follow the precepts and govern the government in the embodiment of God's truth and his word. Does that mean we go back to the Old Testament and reinstitute the laws given in Israel? No, it does not. What it does tell you is that we are under the law of Christ. The Apostle Paul said, I'm not without law. I am enamos Christu. 
in-law to Christ. And whatever Christ says that we ought to be doing, we take that on board. And that becomes the foundation for all truth and all variation of laws and distribution of God's truth throughout society. And that's the Christian worldview. People ask me, who did you vote for? I said, I voted for the guy that doesn't kill babies and doesn't want others to kill babies. They said, oh, I can't stand that guy. I, I said, I don't like him either. I hate that guy. I hate his personality. I don't like his personality either. I voted for the guy that doesn't kill babies. That's more important to me. It's more important than his personality. It's the lesser of two evils in this case. I grant you that. But I'm not going to let go of my Christian worldview. I'm going to hang on to it. And maybe God, in his providential care of this nation, would put a man in office who would have a selection of people who don't want babies killed in their mother's womb. And look what's happened in our nation, Larry. You may not like the man. You may not think he's a Christian. But given the choices, God has providentially put into place at least away from federal law and federal rule the safety of little babies in the womb of their mouths. It goes to the states. And maybe there'll be plenty of Christians in the states that say, not here, not here. We're keeping our Christian worldview. And this is sin of a high hand. And that's the Christian worldview in the marketplace. So the mark of a Christian worldview is living in full awareness of good and evil and coming to grips with it and standing against it wherever it rears its ugly head. Now, I want to tie. I want. I want to tie into that with uh, uh, Deuteronomy 13. And here's what it says, uh, starting in verse one. My, my eyes are getting bad. I'm getting old, brother. It's hard for me to read this tiny print. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams that giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and that sign or wonder come to pass, wherefore he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God proveth you, that means tested you, is testing you, to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And ye shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. And that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken to turn you away from the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, when I brought this up simply because you're saying no good and evil. Right. Does God, in this life as a Christian, are we going to be put to the test between good and evil? And what is that test going to show based on this passage of Scripture, whether we love God or not? Right. So anything to pass, go along with that? Yep. That's what Christians do. We analyze, we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, we fear the Lord, and we trust his word, and we know good from evil, we know right from wrong, and we press on toward the goal of influencing the world that we live in 
with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's that's the Christian world. Remember, all the way back at the beginning, Larry, when we first started the conversation, right? Listen to the words of Abraham Kuyper. We speak none too emphatically, therefore, when we speak of two kinds of people. Both are human, but one is inwardly different from the other and consequently feels a different content rising from his consciousness. Thus, they both face the cosmos from different points of view and both are impelled by different impulses. And the fact that there are two kinds of people occasions the necessity of the fact that there are two kinds of human life and consciousness of life. So there you have it. There's the Christian and the non-Christian. And there's a Christian worldview and there's a non-Christian worldview. And I would love for this video to have the effect that it reinforces that Christians are different and we need to be in light of the world that we live in. Very good. That whole exposition is true because it comes from the truth itself, the Word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, according to Hebrews. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you don't have this, you don't have any Christian worldview or anything, but uh, we have it by the grace of God. He watches over His Word and uh, preserves it so His people can have it. And, yeah. live, and live their life. Well, uh, Rob, thank you so much for that presentation. It's good information, something that I think will help people because a lot of people need to wake up, get on, get on board, and start studying the, the, the Bible and know how to deal with this dangerous world we're living in. It's full of devils and of Satan and, and everything yeah. else. Because yeah. when you read Revelation, you find that the devil's been thrown out of heaven and he's down here with us. <laughs> along with all his legions that were with him. And they're going to go out and fight against Christ and his church. And the whole world lies in the hands of the evil one. That's right. I think that's, what is that, First John 2.19? Oh, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe earlier, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, when we edit the video, we'll put it on the screen, so make sure we get it right. Okay. Uh, so anyway, uh, all right, with that, thank you so much, brother, for being with us. I really love it, and I'm looking forward to some more shows we're going to be doing. So uh, anyway, with that, I want to say to everyone out there, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I want to leave you with this important Bible verse from Jesus himself. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Look, this Bible here, the two-edged sword I just mentioned, is all about Jesus. It's about Him. So without the Jesus of the Bible, not some phony Jesus that most people have, but the real Jesus of the Scripture, you put all your trust and faith in Him. By faith alone, in Christ alone, uh, by grace alone, you can be saved uh, from this this untowards generation as the king james says uh but anyway with that thank you again join us again next time for christian answers presents and god bless you all bye-bye if you like our youtube channel please subscribe 
by clicking on the subscribe button and then by also clicking the bell above to get an automatic update whenever we produce another YouTube video for our See Answers TV channel. Please share our videos with your friends and relatives. May God bless you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. See related videos by tapping or clicking screens.